everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Choices lead to habits, which lead to behaviors. Coach Ryan Davis of University of Maryland believes in this mantra, not only for his athletes, but for his coaching staff as well. For athletes, it may mean organizing their priorities in a way that reflects their dedication to sports success. And for the coaches, it may mean making the choice and conscious effort to get to know each athlete on an individual level. Davis believes in the power of connection, and it often starts with knowing your athlete's most difficult hardships. The open dialogue between coaches and students and among players themselves is needed now more than ever as the differences like race play such a large role in our life experiences. Learn how to bridge the gap with Coach Ryan Davis. Here it is, episode 370. Power Athlete Nation, what's happening? No, this is this dark, sultry, very velvety voice of John Wellborn coming at you, minus Luke Summers' squeaky, pip-squeaky voice. And joining this 10-year NFL veteran, John Wellborn, my name is Tex McQuilkin. Thanks for coming, Tex. I'm really glad to have you on Power Athlete Radio. Thank you, sir. You've been a wonderful guest. Well, we are... Or friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast for 370 episodes, (laughs) and a lot of... I believe you've done... Have you done more than me in terms of this? Because, I mean, uh, for a while there, I wasn't on it all the time. I would have to go back to the stats. Yeah. And we don't have an intern for that, so it's probably... I'm just going to assume and say, yeah. Uh, It's kind of like the CrossFit football seminars. I think you outpaced me, those. Yes, and there was a world record five in a row. I did five weekends in a row across four different countries. Ooh, I think my best was uh, five seminar. No, it was four seminars in three countries in in, uh, four weeks. Back in the good old days when we would travel the world and teach... Strength and conditioning. Yeah, we love strength and conditioning. (laughs) And now we have the opportunity to expand our genealogy, connect with a lot of coaches through Power Athlete Radio, including Ryan Davis, who we have on today. No, great talk. Um, Not only a extremely traveled, well-traveled coach, very seasoned coach, but also entering into kind of a program that's, you know, had some tumultuous past. I mean, if those of you guys, we're not going to really dig into it because it's not fair for us to ask the present coach about what happened in the past. But if you guys want to do a little Google search, you can check out and see what happened to Maryland and, you know, kind of the program that he inherited. And we'll really get into how he's not, and I used the term rehab, and I think that's not a fair term, but really how he's restored trust, brought these kids along and got them all headed in the right direction through just being honest, being vulnerable, being real, and, um, you know, not mistaking, you know, uh, um, punishment for discipline and just a lot of the things that he talked about and really this growth mindset and, and, uh, you know, the more pivotal one of just sharing and being a human. That, and that's exactly it. Action. We spent a lot of time talking about actions to represent your goals or who you want to be. And we're working with 18 to 22, 24 year old young men. That's a lot of, a lot of want within that. And he does an amazing job introducing how at university of Maryland that he puts these guys in a position to hold themselves accountable and their teammates. When you use the word action, do you know what comes to mind? Field strong. Movies. Train heroic. (laughs) I mean, it's really when people say, hey, bring the action, kind of like Will I Am, you know, a little black eyed piece, bring the action. What happens, I think about, is train heroic and field strong. Yes. Train train heroic is how we deliver the world-class strength and conditioning program, Field Strong, the flagship program of Power Athlete. 
and I'm having a great time on it. We are using this as an opportunity to empower performance, but from a coaching perspective, I would use this program to follow and learn a great way to train athletes how to prepare for performance. Yeah, we talked about it yesterday. Um, you know, the the history of this whole thing really starts with a program called Field Strong. Uh, years ago, I got hit on Talk to Me Johnny with a question like, what does CrossFit football look like without CrossFit? And I wrote a blog post called The Power Athlete Template. And it was really when I first wrote down the template that I was using for training athletes and what I was really translating into CrossFit terms for the CrossFit market through uh, CrossFit football. And at that point, I got a ton of emails from people asking, like, can I subscribe? Like, where's the website? How do I follow this program? And then we decided to stand up Power Athlete and start, uh, you know, we had a, a you know, WordPress paywall where uh, I started testing uh, FieldStrong. And the FieldStrong name comes from a guy I played with who was a, kind of a, a country dude, super strong, uh, wasn't real strong in the weight room. And when I asked him, I'm like, man, you were not very strong in the weight room. He's like, no, I'm not weight room strong. I you know, grew up on a farm and you know, grew up doing field work. And there's a you know, difference between field strong and weight room strong. And sure enough, I saw it. And uh, I decided it'd be a great way to really just kind of name that program and kind of just stamp the mark on it. Like, we just don't want to be weight room strong. We want to be able to be universally strong out on the field where it's most important. Like, you know, they never hand out Super Bowl trophies in the weight room but they sure as hell hand them out on the field. And so the production that you do on in the weight room has to translate onto the field. And what I saw with a lot of programs is they didn't translate because they didn't understand the game or they didn't understand the demands of athletes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I always secretly laugh when people use the word or refer to me as a coach because uh, usually a coach to me is the dude who's standing there, you know, watching me work my ass off. Yeah, you don't have a mustache. No, and I don't, you know, and I'm not, you know, have a body mass index of over 40, <laughs> uh, you know. So um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's by far some of the, the best stuff that, um, you know, comes out of Power Athlete, comes out of that Field Strong program. So if you guys want to check it out, go to uh, powerathletehq.com backslash Field Strong, or you can just click on the training tab, or if you go to uh, trainheroic.com, you can search Field Strong, and, and you can find what I think is the best program out there. And a 14-day risk-free trial of yeah. the program to see if it's right for you. So a combination... I mean, it could be too powerful. It could be so powerful that all of a sudden you're just ripping through t-shirts and exploding pants, and then you decide, hey, you know what? I don't want to be this powerful. I don't want to be this epic and awesome, so I'm going to have to do something else. And yeah. we have other things for you. Then we have Jack Street, Field Strong, Grindstone, uh, Grindstone, and if you really, really got a good sense of humor, you jump into Johnny Wad. It's a great time. Needless to say, we have over twelve programs for you to choose from, depending on your training goal and the amount of time you have each day and each week to dedicate to empowering your performance. This is performance for the people which is a lot what we get into today with University of Maryland head football strength coach Ryan Davis. Are you ready, John? I am. Fire it up. Go. Uh, let's, let's roll right into it, Ryan. And so share your coaching experience, your athletic experience, and how you got to where you are today. All right. Let's give – I'll go with the abbreviated version a little bit. But um, I'm pretty sure – I'm fairly certain to say that there aren't many other. I'd be surprised if you found one other strength coach uh, that's had a path 
like I've had to where I am today. So I played at Rowan University, um, Glassboro, New Jersey. I didn't play my entire career there. I played my first two years there and, you know, had great relationships with teammates and things. Really, really excelled in the weight room pretty much since I've, since I've been lifting. I mean, probably since I was 13. Um, I've always had a love for training, even when I didn't know I had the love for training. People around me did. So, you know, if you're familiar with Division Three, you you kind of you work out wherever they have a space for you, right? You don't have these big, nice Division One weight rooms with all these racks and platforms. So, for a little bit, we worked out in something that was similar to like an auto shop, and then we worked out in our rec center, in our campus rec center. Um, so while we were there, I actually developed a lot of relationships with the people in campus rec. So, I end up graduating. I get out of school. I, I'm, I'm running a business. Um, I grew up in the moving business, moving furniture. So I've, I've had um, probably been doing this since I was about 13 years old. And so my brother owned a company, got out of school, partnered with him, made a whole lot of money, way too much money, and was absolutely miserable with what we were doing. We grew the company. Um, I, I like the challenge of it, but him and I didn't have a great relationship. It started to affect relationships in our family. And I just was not really happy with what I was doing. So I made a phone call. I wanted to try this, this coaching thing. And a lot of people had told me like, man, you're, you're going to end up as a strength coach because you always, you know, if we're conditioning, you may not finish first, but you're always pushing the finish in the front of the pack. Um, if, if we're, if we're sprinting, it's always an effort thing. You always had this curiosity to learn on technique when it came to lifts. Um, so the only call that I knew how to make, I, I knew to call our director of campus rec because I knew football worked out in the rec center. Um, he's now the director of campus rec at the University of Georgia, but he basically had me come back and he goes, you know, I don't know a whole lot of people in the strength and conditioning field, but I know very few times Campus rec and strength and conditioning may coincide. So if you come back and start working with me, I'll do everything in my power to help you get set up to become a strength coach and maybe go somewhere and get a GA. So I did it. And I started weaning out of my company. I went back, worked for him. He had a GA quit. So he came to me and said, look, I'll pay for your housing. We'll pay for your food. If you promise me one thing. And I said, what's that? He said, you've got to promise me that you'll leave. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? He goes, because this is going to make you too comfortable. And if we keep you in this position, I'm afraid that you're not going to grow and really get into the career that you really want to get into. So I, I took the opportunity. I actually GA'd at Rowan. I'm, I'm, to this day, I think I'm three classes short of another <laughs> master's degree there. Um, and I went to this conference called NURSA, um, National Intramural and Recreational Sports Association, um, to look for a GA position. And I, I got offered 11 GA spots. They told me if I had two or three that I was doing really good. I ended up getting offered 11. And the University of West Florida offered me a, a GA position in campus rec and said, we would allow you to double dip because our athletic facilities are right across the courtyard. And a lot of, a lot of them fall under the umbrella of our campus rec. So I was a GA for facilities for campus recreation and I was also an assistant strength coach for Kent Morgan at the University of West Florida with the first staff there. Yeah, Kent Morgan, he actually played football with Rafael Ruiz and Benny. Oh, at, at uh, Sam, Sam Houston. Houston State. Yeah. 
So okay, so what uh what position did you play in college? Were you offensive lineman? I was, I was a defensive end. Oh, uh, defensive end. Okay. So I got to know Ralph is one of my closest friends to this day. Uh, he's down in Tampa, and I've gotten to know Benny really well, obviously through that relationship with Kent. So I went to West Florida, did my GA there, had an incredible time, learned so much under Kent Morgan, an incredible experience. Um, had an opportunity when when uh, Coach Saban came to Alabama. I had a tie with with Scott Cochran. Well, at West Florida at the time, we were starting the strength program, so we had nothing in the summer. From pretty much April to September, you really didn't have anything. So Kemp was like, man, I think if you can get an internship during this time, I think it would really serve you well. So I ended up getting this internship at Alabama. And this is where enter into my life, Scott Cochran. I think I met Scott when he was 27, maybe 28, something like that. I'll never forget my first staff meeting. He comes in with his blonde, basically mohawk. This guy's yelling. He's like, yeah, 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 all over the place. He's going nuts. We had 20 interns that were in my class. And um, he had hit his head on the top of the garage before the staff meeting. And all of his hair was blood red. And I remember, I'm like, man, this guy's freaking crazy. Well, intern for Scott, I ended up getting an opportunity to go back later on down the road and work for him full time. Um, I had him and a coach there, Terry Jones, who's been at Alabama now for 30 34 years ended up really taking me under their wing. The last day of my internship, Scott said, I'm going to hire you back here. You know, it's Alabama, right? And you, you're like, ah, okay, whatever, man. Like, thanks. I'm not going to put much stock into it. So my first full-time job was at the University of Louisville. And um, seven months after I was there, we played Oregon State. We fly back to Louisville, Kentucky. And I turned my phone on when we landed. And I had a text from Scott that just said, you ready? question mark. And I, I mean, I hadn't talked with him in seven months before that, you know? And so I call him up that night and he's like, all right, we got a spot. You ready to come home? I'm like, man. So I talked to coach strong and he thought it was a great idea. And I ended up going back to Alabama and that was my second time there. And I spent 10, 11 and 12 um, with that staff. I took my first head job with uh, Pat Sullivan at Sanford University. And um, it was one of the harder things I've ever done because you guys know college football, right? So your, your family, one second you're at the University of Alabama and your family's on the field for every home game, you're traveling every away game, you're, you're at the pinnacle of college football. And then you say, I'm leaving to go to Sanford and everybody's reaction is Stanford? And you're like, no. <laughs> Sanford, I'm going to the private school in Birmingham, and nobody understood it. But I'm going to tell you, man, in, in hindsight, Pat Sullivan completely changed my life. Working, working for him changed everything for me. Um, he's an incredible – he was an incredible coach. He was a better man. He taught me about my Christian values and not to be afraid um, to be public with your Christian values. He taught me about – um, the value of relationships, you know, not just with the athletes, but with everybody in the program. And, and he taught me that there's a different way to coach and gain that high level of success. And I, oftentimes I wish that I could have coached with him when he was at TCU, but um, he was more like a father figure than anything. He was unbelievable to work for. So I spent three seasons with him. He resigned 
due to some health issues. And uh, I got an opportunity to go to Colorado State with Mike Bobo. I spent four years out there with him and then uh, came back to the East Coast last year when I had an opportunity to uh, come back and take over at the University of Maryland with Mike Loxley. Now, one thing I'm going to go back to in that story is when Kent Morgan told me, I think it would be a good idea for you to get an internship because I think it'll really help your career. Well, here I am now, 11 or 12 years later, whatever it is, where I get the job at the University of Maryland because of the relationships that I had previously created at the University of Alabama. Man. Well, I mean, it's pretty accurate. I mean, the seeds you sow, I mean, it just it, it goes to show that, you know, not only character, but, you know, being able to go in, in the ground floor and meet people. And as you know, man, dude, uh, coaching, whether it be uh, in the NFL or whatever college is so incestuous. It's like, hey, as soon as somebody goes somewhere new, they bring their guy. I mean, look at you know NFL strength coaches. The minute somebody gets fired, what do they do? They bring in a new head coach, usually keep the strength coach for one year, and then they bring in their whole staff of individuals. Yep. So it's just kind of, you know, and then you have to be, like you said, man, like, a, a, you know, agile and I guess have the courage to be able to move and go to new places and continue to rise up. Because if you had just stayed in one spot, you probably wouldn't have gotten the opportunity you have. I mean, that's the... I guess the um, transitional and uh, nomadic existence of the strength coach. So, hey, uh, yep. um, uh, with the the deal at Maryland, I know you came in under kind of an interesting set of circumstances uh, with the previous coach leaving, and we were I was just going over all that information. Uh, is that something you want to dive into a little bit about how you've kind of gone into kind of I don't know not only rehab the image, but uh, kind of having to kind of deal on the tail end of that? Sure, man. I mean, we're, we're an open book for coaches. So we tell them all the time if we have an open door policy. So, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing there that I'm afraid to address. So we can talk about whatever you want when it comes okay. to that. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really pretty fascinated. I mean, um, uh, just my history, man, I, I played in the NFL for 10 years and I played at Berkeley and, you know, the amount of strength coaches that I've been involved with. And so it's interesting whenever I read these, uh, you know, this is happening in college football. And I always unfortunately have my tinted lens of having gone through some really awful stuff, uh, you know, the way and uh, as you know, I mean, how old are you? 35. OK, yeah, I'm, I'm 44, so I'm a little bit older. But it just it's interesting how things used to be compared to how they are today. And I wonder mm -hmm. if that has to do with, you know, not only social media or people more involved. There's more spotlight. I mean, I've seen coaches get fired for things that like I didn't even at the time think was even a big deal that somebody said. And uh, it's just kind of a different lens. Um, but, yeah, we were I was just kind of reading some of the, the reports and what happened with the previous staff uh, is I mean, is the culture changed or the kids different? I mean, what's the. What's really like, what have you done, uh, done to really go in and rehab this? Well, you know, as I tell people, it's really hard for me to comment on something when I wasn't here, but I can tell you where, where the culture was when I got here versus where it is today is, is um, I think it's night and day. Um, you know, these, these players is, first of all, let me say this, it's been a privilege to serve these guys and to be able to help them kind of get over the hump and climb that mountain to, you know, you, you use the term rehab, but I'll say to, to get the program where they want it to be and where they deserve it to be. You know, I think from their perspective with us, some things that I know that have been really good um, consistency for them has been really good. I've learned more about vulnerability and transparency since I've been here than any other point in my career. So uh, I think that's been a huge, a huge part 
in the relationship building with the athletes here in the program, because, you know, for me, transparency and vulnerability is not just being honest with players. It's, it's really putting players in a position to show them a side of you that most people don't get the opportunity to see. So as you guys know, um, my wife, Marissa, uh, she comes in all the time here. She trains all the time here. The other wives come through. Um, Mason's got four kids. We usually have time. This is before COVID, but we would have time throughout the week where we may have a day or two where it's family time and all the kids come in and they run around for an hour, but that doesn't exclude players, right? It's important that they get to see coach Baggett as a father. So like, how does he treat his son? How, how does he work with his son? You know, we've done things. We have players over at the house all the time. I wish I had gotten footage of this. One of the things we did last year, the players wanted to have a fight night. And so for one of the fights that there was, we rented it on pay-per-view and, we had the guys show up to the house and, um, you know, Riss told me, she says, well, how many of them you think are coming? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, I think 20 of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I said, I think 20 of them signed up on the board to come. And we ended up having like 35 um, come by the house. And they stayed at the house till three in the morning. But one of the best things that we got to see, we created an environment for them where they could be them. So they had shoes off. They're ragging on each other. You know, they're, they're joking with each other. We got, it, it was just, it was so awesome to be able to see. And those are the things that give new meaning to vulnerability and transparency. So um, I think this team has grown incredibly close. And I think when you learn all the aspects of what it means to be vulnerable and what it means to be transparent, the thing that goes up on the other end is the trust factor. Um, so, and that's, that's what we've worked. We've been very intentional about how we're going to build that. So uh, the trust is at a place right now where with my players, I mean, I, I, we talk to our players about everything. If Marissa and I are having issues, I'll talk to players about it because if I don't ever give them the opportunity to learn what I'm going through, then how am I ever going to help them with what they're going to go through? You know, there, there are times where when coach Baggett is learning things about, being a father, you know, with his kids, you'll go out and see him with a group and he'll be sharing those things because we have some players that have kids and we, they need to know how to get a, how to get through these things. But if you're never honest with them and you're never sharing that part of your life with them, that that's the ugly part, right? That's the part that people don't want to put on social media. Social media is like a highlight reel, but it doesn't, it doesn't show the real issues that you got to go through in your life. Those are the things that we try to share with these guys because that's how they grow. And I think because we have the trust with them and that vulnerability and transparency, we've, we've been able to do that. And we've created a culture where the sense of having each other's back. So like we say, if now if something happens to me because they really know who I am, they don't get permission to just walk by and look. And it's the same thing with me. If something happens to them, I, I no longer can just I got to get involved because I know I'm on that level now. So um, that's been really, really good with our players here. It's been really good with our program and it's been a learning experience. There's a lot of this that, you know, we, from a player aspect, from a coach aspect, we've been learning on the fly, so to speak, with some of this stuff, because there's, there's no book, there's no manual written on how to do this or how to take over a program that's that's been through some of the things these guys have been through. 
Did um, how many guys tra- or did you guys lose a lot in terms of transfers or you know I mean I know that like you know the transfer portal and kids can kind of bounce around. I just didn't know if there was an exodus out of the school. Yeah, I don't. We didn't have a mass exodus. I mean, sure we had some attrition, um, but one of the things that Coach Loxley did that I thought was really good, especially in hindsight, is he gave everybody in this program a clean slate. Everybody, and when he met with every player here, when he got the job. You know, he was very clear with that where, you know, here's your canvas. You're going to start your canvas right now. So whatever you've done before this point of us showing up doesn't matter to me. You get to write your story from right now. So that was good because he, he essentially gave everybody in the program a second chance. Whether they needed it or not, he gave it to them. So, um, you know, we, we had some attrition that came that next year, but I, I don't know that we ever had like a mass exodus of the program. Was um, I know it's kind of like old school thinking, and I, you know, whenever I say the word old school, I just hear Zach Evanesh in the back of my head. So, <laughs> uh, but it's kind of the idea that you know familiarity breeds discontent, or you know, the idea that hey, if you're too familiar with your players, it becomes impossible to discipline them. I kind of am almost seeing something where it's almost the exact kind of other side of the spectrum, and I. Uh, like that was the, co- the the coaching environment that I not only played in through all, not only college, but, uh, you know, the NFL was a little bit different. But the, the place that I really saw something similar to what you're doing was when I went up to Baylor and I got, um, you know, Kaz was one of our strength coaches at the Chiefs. And I got to go up and hang out with Kaz and see the way that he was coaching those guys. And uh, their issue with discipline was when I asked him about it, he's like, you know, I think uh, the discipline becomes less of a factor because we have such a close relationship that these kids don't want to let you down. And he goes, you know, um, and he goes now all of a sudden that like, because they know we're in their corner and it isn't this kind of us versus them mentality that if something goes wrong, the uh, players are quick to police it because they know we're all on the same side and they, you know, we're not the bad guys. We're not the wardens. We're uh, effectively, you know, and he joked and called it inmates. We're all inmates. And, um, are you seeing that kind of mentality that there's definitely been a switch? Yeah. And I'll tell you, there's been a big difference in that between years one and two, you know, so for us with, with what we do here in terms of, of discipline, and I got to be very clear with this, we, we are very, very intentional about discipline versus punishment. You know, we, it's, there's a learning component to discipline and I think the punishment, a lot of times it's, it's just mindless things, but we have a protocol where it's really player run and it's an expectation that's upheld by the players. And what we're working towards is getting it to where it's an expectation that's set by the players. So for right now, like if, if a guy, if a guy misses something or he's late to something, first of all, there is always that feeling of like, I don't want to let them down. But more often than not, he knows what he's got to do to make that up. And there's not really a whole lot of backlash with that. And that's a good thing for me because I'm going to tell you, one of my weak points is, as a coach, as a head strength coach, I always want the player to see it my way. We've got got the, the hindsight. We've got the 2020 vision. We know a lot of times that, you know, hey, you don't need to do this because or you need to do this because, and for me, I'm headstrong. So I always want guys to see it my way and I'll, I'll snap for no reason. It's been really good being in a situation where the players kind of look at you. They're like, coach, we got this. We're we're good. 
Don't even worry about it. I mean, they joke with me on Saturday mornings like, hey, don't even don't even come out of your office. You, we don't need you out here. We don't need you with whatever we're doing. So um, that's been a huge difference for us between years one and two. And again, I, I think the piece for coaching, it goes back to the relationship with us, but it also goes back to we're intentional between punishment and discipline. We, we're, I'm not looking to punish guys. I don't want things to be punitive to guys, right? It's just you get the privilege to do this. It's not the right. And because it's a privilege, there's a certain standard, there's a certain expectation, and we got to meet it. And when it's not met, then there's a price that we've got to pay for that. Oh, it's good. I like the I like the distinction between punishment and discipline, because I think uh, all too often coaches hide dis or hide punishment as discipline. This is a mm-hmm. disciplinary action because this, if that, and uh, then it just looks like, you know, punishment. I mean, I, I remember I got a. Uh, I got a, like when I was in college, I got a, the only time I really ever had to do dawn patrol, which basically started at 5 a.m. and you basically run the stairs until the sun comes up at 6 or 6.30 or 6.21, whatever it was. And uh, it was because I took a late hit. Like this dude like was uh, piling on, took a late shot on our receiver. So the next play I ran down and I picked that dude off the pile and I ended up getting a penalty. And um, they ended up, you know, giving me this dawn patrol thing. And I'm like, wait a minute, but our running back got a penalty for, you know, for something and they didn't give it to him. And, uh, and I, and I always remember thinking like, I don't mind getting punished. I don't mind discipline as long as it's unilateral and everybody gets treated the same. What I didn't like was like the different people were, uh, held to a different standard. And I mm-hmm. think that's, um, that's something that, uh, you know, I saw in the NFL, I saw it in, uh, in college that not everybody was treated the same. And I always thought that that was what really breeds like dissension and like, cre- creates a lot of animosity and actually destroys teams is when people aren't treated the same. Couldn't you know? agree more. And, uh, there's something that whenever people ask me, like, oh, what do you think? about? I'm like, dude, if you treat everybody the same, I, I have three kids, too. And there's like one standard I don't treat, you know, even though you can't, you know, treat all your kids the same because they're all different people. But like as long as the rules are pretty unilateral, like this is acceptable, this isn't, you know, when you start making allowances, then I think that's when all of a sudden, you know, you start running into, you know, some serious problems. For sure. Couldn't agree more. I want to stick with, I'm hearing a lot of the word that people would define as empathy. So I'd love to stick with that. If you have a specific definition and then how do you teach your coaching staff to then develop that empathy? Cause you've traveled around a lot as a coach and I'm, I'm not sure of your other coaches experience, but definitely the interns don't have that ability to necessarily empathize with the athletes. It's probably more sets and reps in their mind. So how do you deliver this message to the coaching staff to then deliver your message to your team? Well, when you when you talk about empathy, I think this goes into a bigger conversation for me that I've actually been having quite a bit. And I think it's about perspective. It's 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 about being able to understand a perspective of of another person. Um, You know, for us, we're like the our players call us the in-betweeners. (laughs) which I always think is funny because they're like, yeah, well, you're not like y'all aren't like coaches, you know, because you don't like you don't like tell us who's going to play and who's not going to play. But you're also like not like our boys because you got to coach us, you know, so you guys are kind of like the tweeners. Well, I think it's really important that we maintain that because I think that's what brings value to the relationship that you have with them. We don't dictate playing time. And they know that our motivation is we need to prepare everybody. And, and to me, I'm like, I, I just want the best players on the field. 
That's all I care about. Give us the best chance to win. Um, one of my players said to me the other day, he was joking and he was, he just kind of goes off because he's like, you guys really don't care what a guy looks like or where he comes from or where he's been or what his background is. You know what you guys care about? You care about sweat equity. Like that's it. You just care about the fact if guys are willing to work and pay a price for what they're going to get. That's really all you guys care about. And I'll, and I mean, isn't that what it, everybody should care about? <laughs> well, I agree. I, I, that's what I think. Yeah. Um, and he said it kind of jokingly because he's like, you know, sometimes I don't, I don't even think you guys care about how good a player is. I really just think you care about the sweat equity in a guy, like his ability to work and earn what he gets. And that's how you treat us. And I thought that was a pretty good compliment, you know? And so that, that in-between land between players and coaches, you're always trying to talk to coaches and give them perspective. And it's hard because what's a coach's job? Well, we always say, number one, they got to out-recruit whatever they have. So it's always like a talent thing. It's always a potential thing. And the strength coach, we don't, we don't work off of that. We don't work off of talent and potential and stars. None of that matters for us. We work off of action every day with these guys. So not to get too far away from your question, but I, I think going back to the empathy piece, it's about being able to give both sides perspective. You, We got to have perspective with our players that, of what a job of a coach is and how they develop an athlete and how they um, how they choose athletes to play, how they evaluate athletes. And from a coach's perspective, we, we got to make sure that they understand what makes the guy tick, what makes him go, um, you know, how he works. We got to make sure they understand his character. You know, those are things that I think is important as a strength coach to, to maintain that middle ground. Did you have that experience as an athlete growing up or is this something you picked up when you began to coach different athletes? I think I had it. Um, but. I also think I learned it. I learned to develop it even more along the way. Um, my experience working for, for Scott Cochran was probably, I was exposed to that the most. Uh, the relationship that he had with the guys was, was unbelievable and how he, how he could manage um, coaches and kind of walk that middle ground. He's a guy that I leaned on quite a bit when I became a head guy with some of this stuff and, you know, I, I often tell the staff too, like the advice that I got from Scott was not a bunch of X's and O's. It had a lot to do with managing people. Um, so I think that helped. And then you leave there and you go to Sanford and you work for Pat Sullivan, who, if you guys know anything about Pat Sullivan, there's never, I, I've never heard a bad story about him. Uh, it's always, Everywhere I've gone, it's people have like a Pat Sullivan story of what he's done to serve people. And then that takes it to a whole new level where his whole thing is about the value of relationships. And so I, I always keep, I'll show you guys this. I got this, you know, Pat passed away in January, but I always keep this at my desk. He couldn't, um, Pat couldn't travel to games and, and coach on the field my last year with him because he had so many health issues. So 
that last season, he gave me this and, and he wrote, this was, we played Auburn to finish and he wrote on here, um, Ryan, remember that relationships last a lifetime and I always will treasure ours. And it's, it's a reminder to me about what we do and why we do it. And the ultimate measure of success for us does not come in wins and losses. We're always going to be measured off of that and you got to win to be able to keep the job, but the ultimate measure of success comes in the relationships you build. And I tell young strength coaches this all the time. You're not really going to find out how successful you are or how effective you are until you get seven to 10 years down the road and you start getting some of those stories to come back. When players call you after they had their first child, well, that's a success. You know that everything you did to that guy, he carried those things with him. It's still helping him in his life today. He's still leaning on some of the things that he learned while he was with you and he thought enough to call you in a, in a pillar moment in his life, right? Like that's what success is about. And that's where I think for me, the icing on the cake was you start with Scott, you start learning some of those things and the importance of some of them. And then you work for Pat and you're like, okay, now it's clear. Like I see it and I can understand it. 18 to 20 year olds. So I want to spend some time with managing these egos, molding these minds and you have a great, opportunity and i'd love to spend some time with do you have an approach Texas, you forget everybody's going to the nfl what are you talking about everybody not all these d3 all-stars everybody out, everybody walking into a division one weight room and coach can co-sign on this one thinks they're going to the nfl yeah you know i i've got a serious affinity for this group that we coach 18 to 22 yep there's a lot of dreams and aspirations there but I'm, I'm probably of the minority group that thinks they're still in a position where they can earn it. And if they made it here, if they made it to the University of Maryland, I'm certainly not going to be the one that steps in the way telling them that they can't do something when they leave here. Um, we do, we run a character development program where we do some goal setting with the guys um, we spend a ton of time talking about mindset, how we train that. We, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to show them the importance of the choices that they make in their life. Choices lead to habits, which lead to behaviors. And so sometimes you'll show a guy that if you look at the choices that you've made in your life and you look at the habits and behaviors that you've created, it doesn't align with what you say you want to do. And we'll show that by like, you guys know this, but you can take, you can take 10 of the most successful people from any of the fields that you want, whether they're businessmen, whether they're um, athletes, doesn't matter. Take 10 of the most successful people that you can find. If you were to go spend a day with each of those people, I bet you could create a list at the end of each of those experiences and you can come back and you can look at those 10 individual lists and probably find a lot of common themes. Man, these people get up early. Like I find that out. These people read every day. Like these people don't miss breakfast. These people maximize their time. Like they're in the car on the way to work, taking calls, doing, there's a lot of things that you'll be able to find. So with 18 and 22, it's a fun process to be able to show them this is what you say, yet this is what you do. Here's how this, this behavior doesn't reflect what you tell me you want to do. So if you want to do this, 
let's try to identify some of the behaviors that reflect this. And then let's make a decision. They're so moldable in that process. Whereas I think, and, and I don't know this because I haven't been to the NFL. I just know how I was at this age. I, I think when you're 22 to 35, you're a little bit more set in your ways. You're a little bit less moldable there. So I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of, I really enjoy the opportunity to play a part in helping people achieve their goals or helping people reset their goals to, to do some of the things that they want to do and accomplish in their life. I think it's about 18 to about 25 or 26. So our brains stop, you know, actually hardening. We stop growing at about age 25, 26. So that 18 to 25, 26. And I know because from 23, I graduated and then I went to the NFL and from 23 to about 26, I was an idiot. <laughs> like, like I, I look back and I remember like all of a sudden, like my brain hardened a little bit and I had this like perception of like, what was wrong with me? And yeah. uh, you look back and you're like, man, like everything got kind of clear. And it's just, um, I think one of the worst things they could ever do was send 18 year old kids to college. I think they should like, uh, you know, like if uh, just think about it, age 35, you got to go back to college right now as a college freshman, like how much better of a student you've been. Cause you have a little perspective. I mean, at 18 years old, like the, like I constantly think about how unready even though I thought I was super ready, you know, to go to Berkeley and go to school and to do this and, and, and all those things. And I'm like, man, I'm just, but by the grace of God, I ended up where I was, uh, because so many of my teammates ended up falling into pit hole or like pitfalls of like, you know, like you said, sleeping in, getting bad grades, flunking out. I mean, I looked at this opportunity and at least I'm going to do is get a degree. I mean, I, for me, I didn't know anybody that played in the NFL. So like, it really wasn't much of a reality. I was just stoked to go to Berkeley and get a free degree and, you know, get into a school I wasn't able to get into. And um, so that was my focus. And I graduated in four years, did my master's and my fifth, and then ended up getting drafted and then thought, well, how long do dudes play? Like, what's the average three years? I guess I'll play three years and go back to law school. And that ended up turning into 10. But I remember that like 18 to 25, 26, like I was such a fool. I had like such an idiot. And so uh, what would the, what would the 44, you said 44 you Yeah, are? I'm 44 now. So what what advice would the forty four year old version of you give to that eighteen year old? Um, <laughs> slow down, just slow down. Like I, I, I and and you see this too with, with your kids. I'm sure. Like we're in such a rush to do everything, you know. Like mm -hmm. I had this feeling like every time I went in the weight room, I had to get stronger, and if I didn't get stronger that day, I was behind. Uh, you know, I had to go here and here, and like there was just so much. Like like there there was such a sense of urgency and this kind of constant feeling that I was behind that it was almost so overwhelming that I couldn't really enjoy or really like soak it in and take it. And I wish somebody would have been like, dude, slow down. Like everything happens with time. You have five years to do this if you just follow the process. And I think because the coaches, um, you know, we sucked. So they were like firing coaches left and right. Like, you know, coach, you know, we had Steve Mariucci come in and then he went to the Niners and they brought, I mean, it was just like, like the lack of like leadership that we had in college was, um, I mean, I, th I think I played for three different head coaches in five years. I played wow. for two different offensive line coaches. We had two different strength coaches. Like there was no continuity. And uh, so when you have this, like, you know, everybody's coming in and, you know, I, I got this one year and this, you just feel it. And uh, I think the only advice I'd give to those kids is like, hey, like just slow down. You got a long, long existence in this thing. And if we can set goals for each year that you can meet, we're totally on board. And um, I think because of that, like, 
you almost are chasing your tail in so many ways. You're running around in circles because the people that were there to, to guide you just did a really piss poor job. Um, you know, as you're sitting here talking, I'm like, man, I wish I had played for a strength coach uh, in college that was similar. I mean, I remember one of the uh, first talks that um, our new strength coach, a guy named Todd Rice, came in and he kept uh, using the term, you got to be fist fucking me. And I was like, he must have said it like a hundred times. And I like in his initial talk and I was like, this like, Jesus, I didn't even know you could do that. Uh, it was just like in the way that like, you know, players talk to players. I'm like, man, this thing would have been all over social media. This dude would have been fired just for his merely opening talk. <laughs> and just like the way, you know, coaches and, and, you know, man, was just so historical to like demean players. And um, I remember always thinking like, why as a coach do you have to demean a player the way that they did? And I'm like, that, that doesn't do anything. All it, do, all it does is uh, build enemies. And then it's like, you know, now you're succeeding in spite and all of a sudden you get to the NFL or, or you have your first call, uh, you know, child and you call up that coach to tell him to go fuck himself. You know, you didn't think I would be able to do it. And, and you know, and you pitted me against other people. And uh, it's just it's uh, it's nice to hear like that, that uh, uh, you have coaches now that are kind of in their players corners because I didn't necessarily feel like that. And that coach would argue, oh, it worked because you were able to. Yeah, but, said, but here's the thing, man. And, and you know, like you, not never, that want, that's right. I'm you just... never want anybody to succeed in spite of what you did. You want to feel right. like, you know, like, hey, like I want to be riding shotgun in your parade, cheering as loud as I can. And I always I, I revel in all my friends' successes. Like, you know, like people so, like root against you, whereas like like I want to like I want to be a part. I want, I want to be at your after party. I want to be there for your success. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I told you guys about we spend a lot of time going over mindset. And right now, and the way we're training, we do it on Tuesdays and Thursdays right now. So here's what's unique. We gave the team a study today. Um, it was done on 40 people, all right? And what they did is it started with body posture. And they took 20 people, and they gave them this positive stance and posture. And after they did it, they would take blood work. And what the blood work shows is that all the people that they gave this positive body posture to, the body responded to that by increased levels of testosterone, right? Uh, increased recovery rate. Then they gave people this, this like negative posture. And what happened is like, there's a rise in cortisol levels. And so, okay, you're a strength coach. And, and believe me, I think we get in our own way too many times in our own, in this field. But if you're a strength coach and you know that by putting negative energy out there and by berating a player and by, if you're constantly doing this and you know that it has a negative physiological effect on a player, then why would you continually do it? If you knew just by either being positive or even better, just be neutral and say what it is. Just by being neutral, you can have an increased recovery rate. You can have an increase in testosterone levels. Why wouldn't you do it? Forget about the fact of being at the after party. Just you are you are supposed to be the expert when it comes to performance. But, yeah, but isn't the other thing, too, you run into is, um, you know, you kind of tend to parent how you were raised. And this is a really interesting one as, as a parent, I'm, you know, for me, too. Uh, you know, I have twin little girls and I got a little boy. So I, I read a whole bunch of stuff on parenting. And um, the one thing that really stuck with me is like, don't continue the cycle. Like if you weren't raised and I hear this all the time, well, that isn't the way I was raised. 
And it's like, maybe the way you were raised wasn't the best way to be raised. You know, like, uh, you, you know, like I grew up with a really smart, condescending dad. I love my dad. He was uh, since passed away, but he was a condescending dude. And because of that, like you kind of grow up in a certain way. And so I make a point not to be condescending to my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, if you talk about like the cycle of violence, like, Hey, I will, you know, and you hear people all the time, well, I was beaten with a belt and being like, I'm sorry. Um, I'm, you know, would I spank my child, my kids? Yes. Am I going to hit my kid with a, with a weapon and a belt? No. Like, like that's, uh, you know, that's like just because you were raised that way. And I think what happens with coaches all too often, uh, especially guys that played at a high level or, um, uh, you know, or didn't play at a high level and they were like, Hey, this is how, I, how I was treated, or this is how I was coached in college, or this is how I was coached when I was young. And they just extend the cycle and be like, well, first of all, that guy was an asshole. Uh, why should I have to follow in that same footsteps just because that's what I was exposed to? Like I played for some really, really horrific individuals in terms of offensive line coaches that are very, very successful, like some of the top guys in the NFL. And um, I would never, if I was coaching offensive linemen, I would never treat them that way because I know all it does is like have people hoping for your ruin. And, um, you know, the one thing which is, you know, and this is an interesting balance of like, how do you, how do you let the players know, like, I'm in your corner, we're in this together, but I also expect a high standard from you without, you know, having to get into this really like kind of negative nitpicky discipline versus punishment kind of thing. And, uh, I think that's really the, uh, the magic and the art of, uh, of coaching. I mean, I, Look, I, I agree. And I'll tell coaches all the time, do you know when you can really push a player and demand something from them? Do you know when you can really do it? When you've taken the time to learn about that guy and he trusts you. That's when you can do it. So you it's really hard to go day one, balls to the wall, with a guy when you know that 18-year-old is probably a deer in the headlights every single day. But one, one of the things we did, and I'm going to give credit to Zach Woodfin. This year I went to um, South Carolina State um, Strength and Conditioning Clinic at Dorman High School down in Spartanburg, South Carolina. I was one of the speakers, and Zach Woodfin was another one of the speakers. Zach and I have been friends for a while. So we went out to get some barbecue and all this stuff, and we're, we're talking through our off-season plans because it's right before the off-season got started, and he told me about this thing that he did with his team and it was the three H's and he says, you know, talk to your guys about who their hero is about a hardship that they've been through and then a highlight for them. And so I'm thinking like, man, at the time, Zach was at Kansas. He's at, he's at Mizzou now, but I'm like, I remember thinking when we're sitting there eating, I'm like, man, I'm coaching a team in the DMV. I'm like, how am I going to go back to these guys and talk to them about their hero, a hardship and a highlight? And so I spent probably two weeks trying to figure out how we were going to do this. So what I did is at the end of every team run or team mindset, we'd sit down, we'd have three guys go up there and we'd have them talk about those three things. We kind of give them two or three minutes. I said, I think this is going to be the best way to do it. I told our staff, you know, you have like two weeks before your coaches come back. And I told the staff, I said, listen, we have to lead this off. And look, guys, when you go up there, it you can't lead off with something light. When you talk about your hero, go into detail about who your hero is and why. When you talk about a hardship, give us the real stuff that you're afraid to tell people. And if you if you don't 
feel like you want to tell us, like I told my staff, you're on the wrong staff. Then I, I thought our relationships were better than that. So I had my guys starve. I've got a guy that um, lost a sibling. Um, I've got a guy that uh, battled alcoholism and depression due to shithead coaches. Um, and so these guys start sharing this with the team. So we had our first three guys stand up and it was amazing. Three dudes, real stories right away. You know, brothers in prison, dad hadn't been around since I was whatever. I mean, it was unreal to the point where I had to, for two weeks, we, <laughs> you talk about an emotional wreck at the end of these things, right? I had to slow it down because when the coaches came back in, the players felt like, no, 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 we don't want to talk. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold up a second. This is one family. So then I went to our coaches, said, look, you guys got to share, but it's got to be the real thing. You cannot, don't come do not come up here and tell us something that we can read on a bio. And the first coach came up there. It was about challenges with his, um, with his wife and his family. And it took him a while to get through it. And here's what happens. All the players stand up. They're telling him to, you know, breathe, calm down. And they're clapping. Coach, just what, take whatever time you need. We went through this the entire, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about this. We went through this the entire off season and we really, really learned about our guys. We started to take notes on it because I started to find out how we could coach guys different based on what they were sharing with us. So we took notes on it and then we started creating profiles for every one of our players. These profiles, they're not for like public knowledge. It's for in-house for us to decide how can you coach this guy? That, to, to Zach Woodfin, that's been the single credit to him. That's been the single best thing I've done um, since being here leading this program. But what it allows you to do, it allows me to push guys past a point that I was able to do it before while maintaining and continuing to grow closer. Because now they know where it's coming from and they know why I'm doing it and they trust me. The last thing you can do is to, to be frank, you can't go out and mother F guys for no reason, just because. You're, uh, there's no reason for it, there really isn't. And you know, much like you said, I wanna be a part of the after party, man, when these guys, when they accomplish their goals and it's by building it the way we have, it's so different because it allows us to be that way and it allows us to push them hard. And then going back to the discipline, they don't want to let you down. And so what it's done is they're like, coach, whoa, whoa, we got it. You don't even need, we got this. We're going to teach this guy. We got it. Choices, habits, behaviors. We got it. So I'm with you. I mean, I'm with you hundred percent. I don't, I don't want guys leaving here 10 years down the road talking about how much of an, of an asshole I was because I never cared about him or whatever. I want them coming back. To, the last thing I want to talk about is reps and sets when they come back and see me. I want to hear about their families. I want to hear about how they've gotten through some of the toughest times in their life and some of the best times in their life. You know, when I hear music like this, I can't help but think about every cheesy 80s action movie ever. 
There's just something so great about how clearly fake every fight scene and workout montage is. And what's funny is the approach of creating sexy cut-ups of bullshit workouts with highly questionable application actually exists outside 80s movies and is more prevalent than ever. Well, like terrible 80s movies, there's so much training garbage out there to sort through these days. And while entertaining, it's scary to think that some people are actually falling for it. Think of the pyrotechnics in Commando or the -the over-the-top use of body oil in the movie Over the Top. Is it possible that they're trying to distract us from the completely unrealistic plotline? Kind of like a sexy-looking program with virtually no performance transfer? This is exactly why Power Athlete has been battling the bullshit for over a decade. The research, testing, and retesting that the coaches at Power Athlete HQ have done to create athletic training programs like Field Strong and Bedrock is unparalleled. We chose to further refine our templates to create Grindstone, Jack Street, Lean Enable, and Hammer because we know that specific goals require specific stimuli. Okay, here's where the shameless plug comes in. A lot of work goes into developing the absolute best program and user experience possible. Just ask our partners at Train Heroic, who have been with us every step of the way and are equally dedicated to empowering your performance as we are. They are relentless when it comes to ensuring that your journey to self-improvement is propelled by the absolute best technology. When you join a Power Athlete program on Train Heroic, the first thing you should do is take a giant sigh of relief. Seriously, because now you're in the hands of founder and 10-year NFL veteran John Wellborn and his team of world-class coaches. And for less than a dollar a day, you've just become part of a community of like-minded folks who all want the same thing, performance. And if this whole 80s movie metaphor thing makes no sense to you because you were born after 1990, simply substitute Star Wars Episodes 1 through 3. Who has the time or the patience for an all-show, no-go imposter program? Head to PowerAthleteHQ.com backslash training to empower your performance today. Now back to the show. Do you feel this has been an approach to help non-black athletes on your team start to feel and experience, empathize, sympathize, and really learn to navigate more what's going on in the world? I think it's helped us because I'm going to go back to what I said before. It's a conversation that I've been having more often um, than I ever have coming back this year. It's about perspective. And again, because you've, we've taken the time to let all of our guys put their stories out there and that's a two way street, right? So if me and you were talking and we go through these three H's, if you feel the need to share something so deep and meaningful about your life to me, then I better be a hundred percent attentive when you're giving it to me. So it's a two way street. And because we've been through that where the players have done that with each other, I think, you know, you're on the quarantine, the Brianna Taylor, the Ahmad Ubri thing happens then the Breonna Taylor incident, and then the George Floyd deal, right? It changed our team. After the George Floyd thing happened, it, it, you could feel the pot stirring. But after that, we had some guys that wanted to speak. They wanted to say things, and they, they wanted to get some stuff off their heart. Well, if it was a black player and you're a white player that has to listen, you know that guy's heart and you know his story. 
So when he's speaking, it helps when it comes to perspective. Um, it also helped because I think a lot of players wanted to share their perspective. And I'm going to speak very frank on this because it's a conversation I've had with my own friends in my own circle. When I, I grew up knowing that if I got pulled over, something could go wrong. So I was taught in a way by my father how to act in a situation when I were to get pulled over. I've been pulled out of a car before. I've been uh, zip tied on the ground by officers before for being the wrong person, right? That's happened before where, where I've grown up. I've been in a situation where uh, I went to court. I, I was on a motorcycle and, and um, my brother and I, we, we ran from a, a cop on the road and we ended up having to turn ourselves in. And when we did, the district attorney there, who was a white lady in her mid fifties, I'll never forget, she told me, she said, I'm gonna be honest with the two of you. And she says, if you guys were 20 miles south of here, there would be a fine and you would go home and it would never be heard about again. But because you were two black guys in the wrong town, in a town that, does, that not many people look like you, um, you're gonna go through the system here. And we did. Uh, and it affected me for seven years of my coaching career. Um, I say that to say that people, our team was able to share those perspectives with each other because there may be a white guy on the team that says, I never looked at police like that. I, I never had to be raised that way. There are guys that'll talk about how they have to anticipate things. You have to anticipate some things happening to keep yourself in a place to be safe. You can't go and do all the things that some of your friends may do. So those are conversations that we were able to have in-house as a team, be frank with, but I think it helped because we had already been through this piece where guys understand each other's heart and they know each other's character. So they gave each other the platform to speak. And when they gave that platform, they also gave um, other players the ability to, to listen. And I think it's helped us. And I think it's grown us closer and it's made our team want to take some steps to be active in how they're how they can affect change in their community. My uh, my dad told me the exact same thing. So my dad was a criminal defense attorney and was a D.A. And uh, he told me the same thing. He goes, you get pulled over. It's the closest you're ever going to be to dying is at a traffic stop. He said the amount of people that have gotten shot and killed at traffic stops, it would blow your mind. And uh, he goes, because you're a big dude, he goes, just know. And we went through this whole deal about when you get pulled over, turn your cab lights on, roll all the windows down, yep. take the keys out, put them on the dash, put your window uh, hands outside, you know, make sure you don't reach for anything. Uh, take your license out, have it ready. Don't ask any questions. Just say, yes, sir, let me get the ticket. Sign the ticket and get away as fast as you can because there's a, the closest you ever come to be uh, or you'll ever come to dying is at a traffic stop. Cops are the dumbest people on the planet. And this is my dad who was a DA and a criminal defense attorney. He goes, he goes, for people that are paid to do this job, they are scared out of their lives. And believe me, if they get up there and they shoot you dead and they go, well, he was a big dude, I was scared, and uh, this is how I felt I was defending my life, he goes, they'll walk on this thing. So you have one mission is to get away from those people as fast as possible alive. So our dads were almost similar in that way. Um, what was, uh, it's funny, when this whole thing went down, Jason Dunn, who was our, our tight end at the Chiefs and uh, – uh, JD is one of my favorite people in the world. He uh, texted me and he goes, man, I wish the whole world got to play on football teams. 
Mm-hmm. And he goes, where, you know, color doesn't really matter. It's just, you know, how hard people work and whether or not you can trust this dude to do what he's supposed to do. And uh, he goes, man, he goes, I think we'd be a lot better if everybody had the relationships that we have about in terms of like hard work where it's like skin color doesn't matter. Uh, everybody comes from different places. And, and also, you know, you, you end up working with guys, so you just naturally ask questions. How did you grow up? And you meet their friends, you meet their families, you meet their kids and their wives and this, and you go on vacations and trips. And, uh, you know, now all of a sudden it becomes, and the one thing that, and I've said this on the podcast, is um, every black dude that I played with had uh, multiple stories about this stuff. You know, where people are like, oh, it doesn't exist. I'm like, I don't know if it's unique to NFL players and college guys, but like, man, every dude I knew had this. And I had stories like this. I can give you a dozen stories where I've, I've never been zip tied out of a car, but I've had the gun pulled on me numerous times walking up to the car or pulled over in this. And it just, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's a scary thing, especially for kids who, you know, might not have been coached like your dad coached you or my dad coached me where they feel like, Hey, I'm in the right, you know, why is this person harassing me? And they get upset and then they don't realize that like, you have one mission is to get away from these people as soon as possible or uh, with, you know, without violence and with uh, surviving the encounter. And I still take that. I mean, I get pulled over. I'm like, Oh God, I don't want to die at the traffic stop, you know? And I'm, you know, 44 year old white dude. And that's the way I think about it. I can't imagine, uh, you know, being in, in, uh, in your shoes and how that all fits, man. That's a, it's a tough one. One of my best friends growing up is a pastor of a church and he called me two weeks ago. And um, he asked me a similar question. And when I when I told him the story, you know, of being in Heightstown, New Jersey and and being pulled over and being pulled out of the car, being zipped out. He said, I never knew that happened to you. And he he was listening to me because he was like, I he's trying to teach this and address it in his church. And it's really, really uncomfortable for him as a white pastor to address this in his church. So he called me to gain perspective. Right. And he's like, I thought because I had a black best friend growing up that I wasn't racist. And he said, this is him telling me, he goes, what I've learned is I've perpetuated things because of how I didn't want to address it or because of how I never took the time to learn your perspective on those things. And he said, so here we are. I've known you since I was six years old and I never knew that happened to you. I never knew that you grew up thinking about if you got in a traffic stop that you had a different protocol than what I did. I never grew up thinking that things could go wrong. So now um, we spend a lot of time talking and he spends a lot of time addressing this uh, as a recent in his church, because he's learning that there's a lot more perspectives. Like you said, that this stuff does happen and, and it's been happening. And he will tell you, like his words to me where I've been living in a world where I've been in denial about these things that I'm now learning exist. And I can relate to, to that. So coach hundreds of athletes, black athletes at the college level and viewed myself as not racist by not seeing color and talking to them. If like a Georgetown dudes from Texas or Dallas, just joke between the Houston and Dallas rivalry and just never, being friendly, cordial, pushing them, coaching them, but never addressing it. And I felt that was not being racist, but definitely learning now to, I love this three H's that you have here to then deeper understand them as a person and almost help better prepare them for the real world following that, that college 
and athletics because then it is it um is it really harness like uh i sometimes think that there's like a interesting line here with like human you know like to be a human which would be to like hey here's here's this individual that i'm i'm either working with connected to or you know am around but yet uh people never ask you questions about yourself you know like hey um you know like you know how'd you grow up and i i, I always thought for my teammates i you know because we you know training camp or you stand around whatever i would always ask people about like, Hey, how'd you grow up? And I was always curious to know how people grew up, where they came from, if they had brothers and sisters, what their family looked like, you know, and it was, um, you know, why people did the things they do. And I was just naturally curious. And I, you know, if you ask me, I'll tell you all about, you know, how I grew up. And, uh, it was, it's pretty interesting to, to see, uh, how people grow up and, you know, and it's funny cause you know, people are like, Oh, I didn't know I was racist. Well, were you human enough to like talk to people and to get to know them in, in a personal setting? I mean, have you ever been over to their house for dinner? What does that look like? And uh, the one thing that I always go back with JD said, he's like, man, I wish more people, like you said, be able to go over to people's houses. I mean, go over to people's houses for Thanksgiving and holidays, meet their family. You know, I always love going over to the dudes that were from the, from the South for Thanksgiving because they always had some bunch of food that I'd never had come from California, you know, deep fry everything. And, um, oh, yeah. I just think it's uh, um, it's it it comes down to like people not connecting or you know oh I'm not racist I have a black friend you're like okay have you ever talked to him about any of this stuff no why would I you know it's just I, I I just think when you're when you play on a team especially as a white dude playing on a football team I mean I was the minority in the NFL I mean you get rid of kickers punters and quarterbacks and you're like ten percent of the dudes are white and so. Uh, even less. And it just becomes something where these are your teammates, these are your friends, and uh, these are the people that you depend on every Sunday so we can go out and kick ass and hopefully accomplish our task. And, um, and I, yeah, and it, it's kind of weird that when I sit back and realize that uh, very few people have had that experience where, you know, skin color doesn't matter as much as it's like, you know, how hard somebody works or the character that they put out or, you know, uh, you know, so it's kind of a, it's, it's interesting to see the way the world is kind of turning in this way. For sure. I mean, it is, um, uh, I can't, dude, I, uh, I feel so sorry for my kids and I'm sure you're in the same boat. I tell them all the time, if I could find a time machine and take them back to the eighties before social media and before cell phones and all the other stuff, I mean, something happens and like the information reaches us. I mean, I remember my dad would sit down and read the LA times every Sunday morning or every Sunday morning until like about dinner or not dinner, but uh, lunchtime. He drank a couple cups of coffee and then we would have dinner kind of early and he would talk for like two or three hours about all the stuff that he read. And that was kind of how we got educated on what was happening in the world. Uh, now it's like information is so easy at people's fingertips and the outrage and how things are. I can't imagine uh, like your job is kind of like diffusing bombs daily, walking in and being like, oh shit, what, you know, what social problem do I have to deal with? when all I want to do is just make these kids big, fast and strong so they can go out and crush it on a Saturday. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely different. And, and I even joke, Scott and I used to talk a lot and we would even joke about like when I was interning there at Alabama or when I was coaching there and the difference in how the job has evolved since then. But I will say that social media is also a two-way street because if you follow it, a lot of the information is out there before you walk in the door. So if you follow your guys and you look at what they're posting or you look at what they're doing, or we, I happen to communicate with a lot of our players on social media. So a lot of what I may be walking into, they're already putting out for me to be able to read before I come in the door. Are you amazed at the stuff that they put out there? You're like, are you an idiot? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it actually gives you a chance to like prepare for it a little bit instead of reacting to it, which as we all hate that feeling of trying to react to something, we'd much rather have time to plan for it. So I think there's good ways that you can use it, but it's certainly different than when I grew up and when I played. I mean, we even talk about the conveniences of, of um, like Uber and Lyft. That came that came up in mindset last week. And I was like, guys, we when when our staff played, we didn't have that. We have one young guy on our staff where I'm like, okay, he may have had that, but the rest of us were like, you catch a cab or you get a ride or you take the bus. <laughs> you guys or, are like or you just walk oh, home oh. drunk. <laughs> yeah. You you guys just put it in your phone, man, and five minutes later, some dude's coming there to pick you up, some stranger, and you're like, Oh, thanks for taking me home. It totally goes against what we were taught as kids where don't take rides from strangers. Everything goes against everything we were taught. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I was laughing at uh, in college, you know, we just had to walk home drunk, you know, like they were just, and like uh, now I can think about it like Lyft, Uber. I mean, how great would that have been? I mean, I'm amazed that people still get DUIs. <laughs> I'm like, a DUI costs you five to 10 grand. I'm like, uh, Uber ride's going to cost you 10 bucks. Seems like an easier one. Yeah, we always, we'll, we'll tell our entire team, man, don't get behind the wheel call and somebody will give you their Uber account. Just, don't do it. I've been to College Park a few times. Uh, it's a mighty fun town. I think, I believe you can walk. I can't remember the street, or at least the main street where all the bars we used to go to, but you could walk back to campus. Baltimore Ave. Okay. Yeah. 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 Everything's there. Route 1, everything. You can walk to everything. I played with uh, Eric Hicks, who played at Maryland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that dude had the hardest head. I have a hard head, and that dude had a hard head. My my grandfather on my mom's side went to University of Maryland. So when I was living on the East Coast, would we'd go to a game. So I went to a lot of Duke Maryland basketball games. Then when oh, they yeah. then when they left, I went to the first ever Big Ten. So it was OSU and Maryland. So went to that first Big Ten game, and they got their asses kicked. It was like two different teams. But uh, uh, I was going to ask um, any amazing success stories. Uh, I always think whenever we get strength coaches on here, we always talk about this like, kind of vision and culture kind of piece. But for the, I'm always interested in hearing about like uh, some of the successes that the kids have made, not only in performance training. You know, kid comes in and you know 175 pounds, and next year he's 225, and you know had some amazing stuff. So I'm always interested in like uh, the progression because realistically, I mean, I, I can think of the development that I made from 18 to 22. I mean, I think I squatted 610 at 19 and benched 500 when I was 22. I mean, like the numbers and like the, the development I made within that 18 to 23 year old range was like nothing I've ever uh, attained in the rest of my life. So I'm always, okay. uh, I'm always yeah. excited with that piece. Now we we've definitely had in terms of our numbers and, and some of the bodies, I mean, we've got, we've had guys that have put on, I've got one guy that's like 43 pounds up in a year, you know, but I hate those things because then a coach thinks that that becomes the normal. And I'm like, no, that's not normal. That's, that's different. That's uncommon. Um, but here's, we've got two guys on this roster. Um, one of them I've become very close with and he knows this. There's no way he should have made it through last year, but Against all odds, this kid's had a ton of stuff go down in his personal life. He's had a ton of, of uh, chips stacked against him. He should have been home. He should have been out of school. And where he is today versus where he was 
365 days ago is nothing short of astonishing. And I love seeing him every day because he's a guy, man, that is that knows it. And you can tell he's so grateful to come to this campus every day and to have the opportunity to be a part of this program every single day. And that is a far cry from where he was a year ago. What do you think the success is just put applying himself to the program, eating consistently, maybe sleeping more? I think it's choices and behaviors. You know, it, this, this guy can run until uh, you'll get tired of running him before he gets tired of running. And there's not any training that you're going to give him. That's going to break him. This guy's had a tough life. He's, he's had a really tough life. He's already calloused. He's already hardened, but he's drastically changed the choices that he makes. And when we go back to those habits and behaviors, they're very different this year than they were last year. The group that he hangs out with, you know, you hear the old adage, show me the five people that you're around and I'll show you your future. Like his five people has drastically changed all of them. Every one of them are different. And I really think it's, it's just changed the trajectory of his entire life. And so he's a guy that I'm excited about. Um, he played for us a little bit last year, had a chance to help us, but he's going to have a chance to help us here in the future and, and, and have a big time impact on this team. And he's the guy that'll graduate and, you know, he'll get that shot against all odds, make it in the NFL and he'll play. He's the guy that when he comes back to visit you, that you're always going to look at and say, he wasn't supposed to make it. And I got to be a huge part of why he did. What do you think the biggest thing that they uh, like the kids coming in in like obstacle in terms of that, you know, like getting over the hump? I remember going as a freshman in college and just feeling like a deer in the headlights. And I remember there being like this kind of moment of like realization. Uh, you know, is it is it like the academics? Is it, uh, you know, all of a sudden now you're 18 years old playing with a bunch of 23 year old men? Because I'll tell you, I was a, a lot more mature at 23 than I was at 18. I mean, the difference between 23 and 30 wasn't as big as it was between 18 and 23. So what do you think the biggest thing that you encounter with these kids is? I think it's all of it. So when you take a kid out of an environment where he's a, he's a big fish in a small pond and he knows everybody, he's got great relationships with everybody. Everybody knows him. He's kind of the mayor, so to speak. Then you put him in an environment where the training is mandatory, doing what he's supposed to do for the academics is mandatory. Having all the engagements that they have to be at is mandatory. And all of a sudden, you're in a position where you're up early training and we have populated your day every single hour of your day until five, six or seven o'clock at night. And now the things that you might have been able to do before, you're no longer able to do because by the time you get home, you're dog tired. You want to go to sleep knowing that you've got to do it again the next day. They don't really know you. You haven't really established a relationship with them. Um, they don't know what to expect, which is a huge deal. And so now all of a sudden they're in this world where it's a regimented schedule, right? And it's all the way through. And that's the biggest thing that I see where, and you know this, every freshman is going to pass that moment of thinking about, I want to go home. Home is comfortable. It's everything comfortable in your life. And, and when you're here, that first bit of being here is extremely uncomfortable because of all the demand that you have on you. And then there are the expectations. Like you said, you're 18, you're a highly touted or highly recruited kid coming in here. And all of a sudden you realize that 
the dudes playing your position are 21, 22, 23 years old. They're grown men. And you're like, okay, I'm no longer the best player on the roster. You know, the stress of all that and dealing with it and managing it, I think is, is huge in getting to an 18 year old. And we tell them all the time, they all, when they get out of here and they get to the quiet and they get to their room, their dorm, wherever they're at, they're all going to think about how comfortable it was when they were home or when they were in high school. And that's the voice on the left shoulder. Like, man, you don't, you don't have to do it. They all have it, but you're all going to come to the point where you're thinking about that. You got to quiet the voice and get used to being uncomfortable. It's about when am I going to be used to that? They're always going to try to make me uncomfortable. And when you get used to that and you accept that, I think that's where they get over the hump. And that usually happens sometime toward the middle or the end of their freshman year, maybe going into that sophomore year, you can tell there's kind of that they've been through that adjustment period now and they want to help other guys that are going through the same thing. So to me, I I think it's all of it. I think it's the demand of everything and the expectations. Yeah. That little, uh, when I was a freshman, that little uh, voice on my shoulder, having to think about having to go home and deal with my mom uh, (laughs) was by far my greatest motivation to do well. (laughs) Uh, I can't imagine having to go home like, you know, <laughs> you're talking about, oh, it's more. I'm like, no, no. I remember uh, I turned 18 and I graduated from high school and I was like, am I dismissed? And I went to college and never came home. I stayed yep. in the summers and did it. And I remember thinking my mom, <laughs> my mom's like, was it really that awful? I'm like, yeah, no, it was. Believe me, I would much rather have gone and run and done, you know, lifted weights and this. And but I also think, man, like um, I couldn't wait to start my life. Like I felt in high school that like I was kind of stuck in this purgatory that when I got to go to college and finally I got to take classes that I was interested in and I got to train and live my life like I couldn't wait for that. I was like, uh, like, you know, like jet rocket to get out of there. And um, it was probably one of the as I look back, one of the best times, because one, everybody was broke. I mean, we our scholarship checks were like seven hundred forty bucks. And, uh, oh, what's um, a scholarship check? Scholarship check, huh? Yeah, Scholarship <laughs> check. And uh so we got scholarship checks, but my rent was about four seventy five, and my parents kicked me a couple extra hundred bucks because if not, like you know, five hundred dollars a month was, you know, more than enough. And uh, man, I remember like it was, uh, you know, like if we were going to get drinks, like oh, they have dollar beers or two dollar this or dollar slice of pizza, and it just was it was so simple because nobody had more than twenty bucks. You know, everybody lived about the same kind of level and like nobody had more, nobody had less and everybody was just kind of even. And it was just not a lot of stress, man. And it was uh, uh, it was by far one of the easiest, best times. But I'm sorry. Yeah, scholarship checks are checks that the university gives you for actually going there and playing at a a sport that people actually come to, not your parents. Oh, well, uh, let me explain (laughs) this. Thanks. Thanks for breaking that down. The Bursar's office. All right. Is located usually somewhere by the student union. And that's where you go to pay to get into those classes that you're going to take. So, yeah, I I didn't have to do that. Yeah. Most of the time for guys like us, it was to go in and remove a hold to try to stay (laughs) in the class. Uh, dude, my, my roommate or, or parking, tickets. uh, dude, my roommate was a dude named Anwar McQueen who played basketball. And I remember, uh, like during the summer, Anwar's like, man, I got all these holds on my account. I'm like, what are you going to do? He's like, well, I don't have the money. But he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go down to that office and I'm going to find like kind of like a heavyset girl and I'm going to make her my friend. And I'm going to get those, <laughs> those blocks removed. Sure enough, I drove him down there and uh, we, like, we walked in and, and he went over. He smooth talked this girl and got all the blocks put off. And he's like, and I got a date with her. And I was like, God damn it. 
need to hang out with you more. I'm like, this dude is so on the ball. But I just remember he's like, there's a whole science of getting blocks removed off your account. And uh, it was yeah, I, hilarious. I, I never knew that. I just went and gave him money. I would just go to work and give him money. And that's the only way I can get him taken off my account. Hey, he, was, he, was, he was a good looking basketball player. I'm assuming he had a lot of game in that way. But God damn, he was smart. I always remember thinking, I'm like, damn, hang out with Anwar more. Ryan, in your past <laughs> coaching experiences, and I imagine this will come up the longer you're in Maryland, what about the, the idea of differentiation? Let's say a, a junior, he's finally got, got that voice off his shoulder, and they started recruiting somebody that is potentially going to take their spot as a freshman. Are the same tools in place to help manage that stress of differentiation of a dude as they're recruiting to improve the team and take away your spot? Yeah, so I, I think it's got to be understood about being uncomfortable for us, right? So we always talk about the coach's job. Our players, we try to get them from the strength uh, staff perspective, we always try to get them to understand when we get good players that come in here, that's a good thing. It's going to drive competition. It's going to drive you. It's going to keep you uncomfortable and keep you growing and keep you wanting to develop and keep you wanting to get better. But if we don't bring good talent in, we don't bring good players in, well, that keeps you comfortable and it doesn't ever really get us better as a program. So I think what's happened for us is being able to see those guys work together, uh, being able to see that older guy. It's happened with us with, uh, I'm thinking about one of the guys we have specifically right now where, you know, he plays at a position where the older linebackers have taken him under their wing and they, you know, they show him and he's really good and he's made them better and they know it. And so, I, I do think that that helps, and I think it's about how you create an environment where those older guys can help the younger guys despite how good they are at what they do. It's got to be understood that if if they got you – if I'm here in 2019 and they got you here in 2020 at my same position, then that means that they must think that you're going to be better than me in the long run. That has to be understood. That's a coach's job to drive the competitive culture in the program. And if that's not understood, then you're in the wrong place. And I also think as a player, if uh, if a younger dude can come in as a freshman and beat you out, you probably shouldn't be playing anyway. Yeah. I, I remember in the NFL, they would draft young guys and make you worried about it. I'm like, I'll teach him everything. And I was more than happy to always work with the young guys, you know, on technique and this. And I'm like, if you can do it better than me, come take my job because I don't deserve to be here. And the day that I don't, I'll be out of it. And it got to 10 years and I couldn't do the job I, wa I wanted to. Then you end up leaving. But I think like there's always this fear that so-and-so is going to come in uh, I have rarely seen, and, and this is, you know, an offensive defensive line thing. Um, I know it's probably maybe a little bit different with like maybe a quarterback or a receiver or maybe some uh, of the skill positions. Um, but it's pretty rare for an 18 year old kid to come in and have the physical maturity. I mean, you remember you showed up as a freshman. I remember looking and there was like, uh, I was like, you know, second string or third string. And I remember the dude who was the starter, he had a full beard and a chest hair. And shaved that morning? <laughs> I didn't even own a razor when I went to college. And I remember he shaved, and like five days later, he had that beard back. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> right? This dude benched. I watched him incline uh, for like 450 and bench 500 pounds. And like and I was you're, – you're you're like, that really puts you in your tracks, right? Yeah. That really, you're like, whoa. I, I was just stoked. I just benched 315, and I saw this dude literally crush 500 and like a 450 incline, and I was like, holy shit. And you know what? Like, there was, no, there was nothing going on in my mind that I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to beat this dude out. 
I was like, you know what, maybe in a couple years, maybe when I get a razor and I get bigger and stronger, like I will like be able to emulate these guys. And all the older dudes were super good about not only training with, hey, this is our training time. You need to get into our training groups. You know, like I've always said, if you're the strongest dude in the weight room, go find a new weight room. So for me, uh, that was a huge deal. And like, you know, just those guys taking you under their wing and, um, you know, kind of helping you in that process. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, you see these guys go and play in the NFL. And that was a really interesting realization for me was um, I was like a freshman on scout team and I was playing against these two guys, a guy named Reagan Upshaw, another guy named Dwayne Clemens. And all of a sudden those guys go out and crush it and they get like both drafted in the first round, like top 10 picks. And you're like, those dudes did not beat my ass that bad. And then you go see them play in the NFL and they're killing people. And then that's all of a sudden you realize you're like, oh man, maybe I could do this job. But I mean, it's pretty rare just because the physical jump, man, I mean, the difference in the NFL from 23 to 30, not that big as it is from 18 to 23. I mean, I, I think that's the, the biggest growth opportunity. And that's what's interesting with like a strength coach, especially in that college environment. Like you guys have so much impact. Like I always hate whenever people want to like look at NFL strength coaches as having this. I'm like, no, no, dude, you have the best players in the world. You could go have those guys play the snare drum for 20 minutes and they're going to get better. Really, the yeah. like like the maturation process and the growth and all that really comes in college with the college strength coach. That's why I always think they're by far the most valuable and the most underrepresented, uh, you know, for the impact they have. Because, I mean, think about it. If, if you were to time box out your time, how much that you work with the players versus the actual football coaches, you got to be three times more time uh, spent with these kids than the actual football coaches are. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, they and, and sometimes the coaches don't understand this which I was talking to Coach Locks about this the other day. So we're going over the schedule. And it's like, all right, strength coaches, you're going to have two hours for this day, right? And sometimes they don't understand. For us to have two hours with the whole team, that's about 10 hours of training. Whereas when you practice, to have two hours of practice, it's two hours of practice. So when you have 10 hours of training with all your different groups to get two hours of training in, the other piece that happens is if you do it right, you create an environment for us, like on a heavy squat day, if you're a lineman that's training at 8 a.m., those linemen are going to come back at 11 because they want to see their next group go. Like, I want to see the other guys go and, and squat heavy. So they come back around the weight room, and by the end of the day on those big heavy days, I mean, you got guys that are coming in here. Our weight room's small now. We'll move into a new facility in, in Cole here soon, but, like, you know, that, that's the interesting part, you know, and you get to spend that time with them and you want them to come in. You want them to be able to hang around the weight room when they're not training. You want them to be able to, you know, come into the office and, and talk about stuff. And again, I, I think it goes back to the relationships that you create with them. And that's a direct reflection of the time that you get to spend with them. Question going back to ego. So we want to empower these kids, put them in the best position to succeed. But there are a certain amount of kids, and this can go back to any time within your ex co coaching experience, where they have this high representation of their self-esteem that's not necessarily as accurate to their current level of ability. How would you recommend a high school coach, instead of writing that kid off immediately, to help bring that kid down into a coachable position so that they can improve and eventually reach where their ego at this moment in time believes that they are. Well, so the first thing is obviously the relationship, right? We already talked about that, making mm -hmm. sure that that's established to do it. But the other piece is this neutral thinking. 
and you heard me talk about this before, all, all it is, is it's a truth-based thinking, right? Does what you say and what you do align with what you say you want? And if it doesn't, it's your job to educate them on, well, here's what you say, here's what you put out, and here's what you tell people, but here's what you do. Okay, so if this is what you want to do, and you're not aligned right now, then let me help you align with some of the habits and behaviors and some of the choices that are going to get you where you say you want to go. Otherwise, I'm going to continually point out, this is what you say, and this is what you do, and they don't align. And your actions are speaking so loud right now that nobody can hear what you're saying. It's your job to educate them on that. So, you know, again, we, we spend a lot of time with that. We spend a ton of time in, in talking about those things. I've got guys, well, we're on a voluntary period right now, and, and that's fine. And for various reasons, if people don't want to be here uh, to train right now, but if you're a guy that says that you want to go to the NFL right now and you're going to want that opportunity to play and you're not training, you're not training with me, you're not training with anyone else, you're not getting up early, you're not eating the things that you're supposed to eat, well, guess what I'm going to do whenever those guys get back to me is I'm going to point out that I'm going to point out where they're misaligned and what they say versus what they do. And then I'm going to point out to some of their peers where they're misaligned because there's no pressure like peer pressure. Can you get into like, uh, I mean, this COVID deal is, I, I can't even fathom this. I mean, the fact that they were like sending kids home, uh, you know, the training, social distances, I mean, uh, I just saw like a bunch of UT players all, you know, got tested and they had it. I mean, I, I can't imagine the the hurdles that you're having to jump. How, how are you managing this? Like uh, for the kids that went home, I mean, obviously you are probably stalking them on social media, sending them programs, making sure they're doing that. Like how do you kind of manage this kind of, uh, I mean, it's really tumultuous time. So, yeah, over the quarantine and what I kind of said over and over to strength coaches is your your relationships are really going to be questioned right now because – if you put the time in that you were supposed to, then you probably have open lines of communication with your players. And if they're being honest with you, then it's going to be easier for you to meet them where they're at when you get back. Um, and, and I think for the most part, we had really good communication with the majority of our football team while we were in the quarantine. When we get back, when we got back, the objective was how do we meet the players where they're at? We haven't done anything since, what, March 13th, March 11th, something like that. March 10th, um, we did not have a spring football season. So they haven't done any type of football-related work since 2019. Damn. Uh, no spring football, had, huh? What's that? No spring football. Fuck. We did not have a single practice for spring football before the quarantine hit. Was that uh, was that unilateral over all the teams? No, what? some teams started earlier. It just kind of depends on how your training schedule and academic schedule falls and you know, what you decide to do with spring football. So some teams had a few practices. Some teams got through half of their spring football season and some teams didn't practice at all. Wow. Just, it just so happens that, you know, however that timing lined up. So our protocol this year, um, we have an awesome partnership with play and with rogue. And um, we got set up in our concourse with 20 racks outside that are all spaced. They're in clusters of five each cluster spread apart 12 feet. I'm sorry, each rack in a cluster is spread apart 12 feet. And then each cluster is like 30 feet apart. So it goes the length of our entire concourse. Um, for one strength coach, he's responsible for that cluster of five. So he gets five athletes to coach. 
Um, 20 can come in in a group, no more than that. Our field is laid out like an etch-a-sketch diagram. So every bit of running that we do, the players are spaced six feet apart. Again, they're in those clusters of five. Each of those clusters is at least 30 feet away from each other. And um, it was really about getting them in a routine. Players are used to a certain normal when it comes to training. And our objective for the first week was to get them out of what they were used to. Now there's one player training at a station. He doesn't get to share that station or that rack with anybody else. It's his. The coaches are not there to help them change any weights or put clips on or help them set the rack up. That's all done by them. So from a program standpoint, you get really simple to try to mitigate some of the timing of having to set it up and change things on the rack. Um, we do lift and runs together because we don't bring them in twice a day anymore, which sometimes in the summer we do. So we get it all done in one training block. So my staff starts at 6.45 in the morning and we train groups every hour and a half throughout the day. And we go until basically five o'clock in the afternoon. Um, it's tough. Our guys, are, our staff is wearing masks. We're wearing gloves. We go through, uh, if I had to, I don't know how many wipes are in a, we have like a <laughs> three gallon bucket full of wipes and we have five of those up. I'm sorry, is it five? Four of those up in the concourse. So it's one for every group of five racks. We go through one of those buckets of wipes about every day and a half for each cluster of racks. But I'll say this, the staff and the team has adapted very, very, very well. I'm having more fun with these guys right now than I've had in a long time. And I feel like it's because we've got really solid relationships with the players. I feel like it's because we haven't been around each other for the last three or four months. So you're very appreciative of the time that you get with them. Um, and you have so much to catch up on. It's like you're getting new stories from the players almost every day. And what that does for the relational aspect has been awesome. It sucks because we can't have them over the house you know, we can't do barbecues for them right now. We can't have, you know, I can't have a pool party at my, at the place in the neighborhood for the guys. That's a tough piece. So you're only getting them for those 90 minutes in that training block right now. That's hard. It's hard because we don't do anything team oriented. So the guys that train at seven or I'm sorry, 645, they, they don't know what the guys who train at 10 o'clock are doing. So well, they know like a zoom. You need to set up like a, like a, a so like a zoom account. That, that's what they've done is what they've started to do is, is, is to get in these meetings and they talk about it, but it's just really hard because they don't have the ability to come back and watch. They don't have the ability to come and support their teammates. If we're doing uh, a run test, they don't have the ability to support them. If we're going to do some sort of competition in training, right? Like that's, that's the tough piece of trying to figure out how do you gain some of those intangibles from things that you were able to do before that you're not able to do right now. And as strength coaches, we're learning every day to try to come up with new ways to be able to do those things with still being in our, in our COVID-19 guidelines and restrictions. What's uh, what do you think? And I'm kind of almost scared to ask, what do you think college football is going to look like in the fall? I don't know. Do they have, they even discussed it in any way or they I'm just, sure kinda... they're, they're, they're discussing this thing every day, but Here's what I'm going to tell you guys. Our football team 
If we play, they're going to be ready. If we don't play, they're still going to be ready. And that's what I'm telling our guys. We are not going to miss an opportunity. They will be ready to go whenever and however this season kicks off. I do think for strength coaches, if you think if you're a strength coach and you think that let's say in January when you start your offseason, all the things that you're doing right now for your protocol, if you think they're just going to go away, I think you're crazy. There's no possible way that we're doing all this stuff right now and then none of it's going to stick and we're just going to go back to normal. There's going to be a new normal for things even when we're past this. I agree. My question now is for your internship. How many how many interns did you bring in for this summer? One. One. Do you anticipate more going into 2020-21? I do. We we didn't so in our internship program, the thing that I take pride in is I, I always want to get guys ready to coach. So it's not that I don't care about the textbook, but I'm going to tell you guys, man, I, I'm not the dude that's going to have you come in and like having binders and binders and binders of intern curriculum for you to read through and, and get smarter. Number one, we want to be able to teach people the ability to critically think and problem solve. At the end of the day, like if you can do those things, you're going to you're going to have you're going to set yourself apart from some other people for jobs. The other thing that we need to give interns the ability to do is to create relationships with our players. Right now, we don't have the ability to have five, six or seven interns to do those things. Those are my number. Those are my top two things that come out of our internship program. So we felt like we could do that for no more than two guys. So I've got a guy right now that's a GA at Wagner College. He's doing a great job for us. Um, he spent some time with Craig Fitzgerald when he was at Tennessee, with Jeff Dillman when he was at South Carolina. Um, he's been really good. We had another guy who was going to be our take the second spot who was local, and he ended up getting the job. And so once he got the job, I didn't want to go back and start screening and like, bringing guys in to interview and all that stuff. We didn't do that. We had one guy who's gone through all the same testing protocol that we have. Um, is He has to go through the same testing protocol that he has. So he's done a really good job. I anticipate us after having gone through this the first time. I don't know how the offseason will look, but I know if it's anything similar to what we're doing right now, at least we know what to expect. I would anticipate maybe having two or three in the off season and then seeing if we can build it back up from there, you know, to get four or five guys by next summer. Any advice, and this is a very general question, John, don't hate me for it, but any advice for the dudes that are on that grind where you have a master's degree and you're struggling to still get an internship? You got to keep hunting. You got to keep hunting. I mean, what I've done is, I've got a very strong network of coaches um, that I, I think we just have great relationships. I mean, Dave Feely's at Miami. We, we went to school together, played against each other growing up uh, from one town away. Aaron Feld's been a really good friend out at Oregon. Um, you know, uh, Lou Corella down at Georgia Tech. And so anyway, you take all these guys and when you have someone really good that's like looking for that internship, I'll reach out to these guys for someone. If I know that we're not taking anybody else, 
I would tell the intern or whoever that person is to be ready and be willing. So you may live in the area where you want to go to Maryland and get an internship. If that opportunity is not there, we'll be willing to go across the country to Oregon if he's got something for you, right? Because it's the, you're going to be connected to this network no matter what. You're going to go through it. You're going to do a great job. And guess what Aaron Feld's going to do? He's going to, when you're ready to look for a job, he's going to be back in that network of coaches going, hey, listen, I got a guy who's ready. If anybody loses somebody or you have transition this year, I got a guy that, you know, I'd love for you to think about. So I think right now it's just important to be willing and be ready. And then what are you doing to stay sharp? So whether that's, you know, registering for a continuing ed course like Altus, something that can keep you disciplined and regimented and keep you on point, stay sharp when you're, while you're waiting and while you're staying ready. God, it's such a, it's such an interesting world. Uh, like, such a dynamic time, especially for you to be like, uh, not only have your perspective, but to be working with kids. And I, I call them kids because, you know, they're, I just assume that they're 18 to 22 years old, but there's also staff. I mean, there's so many different obstacles to overcome. And uh, I think the, the mindset you have where it's like, hey, man, we're just trying to get ready. And, uh, you know, whatever obstacle comes at us, we, we just have to keep that point. And I can imagine uh, football coaches who are some of the nervous, most nervous people I've ever been around trying to sit there and game plan and war board and trying to figure this whole thing out. Like, like they just, it's, uh, it's funny, man. It's, uh, I'm, I'm definitely excited to see how this thing pans out. So just, it's good. I remembered. So Ryan, you asked earlier to John to take this back to the, the 10 year earlier or the 34 year old John. So how about the 24 year old Ryan Davis, who's committing to becoming a coach and you've, you've been through this track the last 10, 11 years. What advice would you give to that young Ryan Davis? Two things, man. My, my biggest regret in my career, um, I had an incredible experience at the University of West Florida. I didn't, I probably didn't enjoy it as much as I could. I had an, an unbelievable experience working at the University of Alabama. I had one of the best assistant jobs in the country, but I knew I wanted to be a head guy. So every single thing that I did I did with the perspective of it's got to prepare me to be a head guy. When we travel to a game, go to with the rest of the, you know, staff or equipment guys or strength guy. I, I didn't. The only thing I know about the towns that we played in is the stadium and the hotel that we stayed at. That's it. Um, I'm going to go with what you said. I, I would say slow down. Enjoy the moment. You're at one of the best places you could be in the pinnacle of the time of that place, right? You're in the college football capital. It's what I call Tuscaloosa. Enjoy it. Learn, but enjoy it. Um, and the second thing I would say, my first head job that I got, I was 26 years old. And I thought I had all the answers because I went from the pinnacle of college football at Alabama to little old Sanford. And you weren't going to tell me that I was wrong or I didn't know what I was doing, or I still get those guys to joke with me because they're like, man, coach, we freaking ran. Now <laughs> I involve my staff a whole lot more when it comes to the programming, the planning and the ex the, the how we're going to execute the objectives for what we have. 
I'm, I'm much more calculated in. I use that word objective all the time because every training block we get into, I'm like, we go back to that. Well, what are we trying to get done? What do we have to get done? And let's make sure when we put this down, all of it has to be measurable. What does a head coach expect? What does he want us to get done? It's all got to be measurable. So um, I was hard-headed. I was very, very hard-headed as a strength coach and probably really lucky. So I would tell myself to talk less and listen more. Um, I don't know where I'd be today if I, if I had done those things, but I know that at 26, you could not tell me. I just wouldn't listen. And there are things that I did that I would not do today. I would absolutely not do today. Isn't that really everybody though? I mean, uh, I'm sure like if you looked back and you're like, man, at 26, I knew it all. And I still know it all. Have you really grown? You yeah. know, like I, I just think age gives you that perspective. I mean, you look back and you're like, Oh, what was I thinking at the time? I thought I was on top of the world, but no, that's uh, I mean, has your philosophy changed? I mean, uh, like in terms of like how, how you, how you, prepare the athletes like I was thinking like um, uh, as a strength coach especially you know like a, a place versus Alabama versus where you're at at Maryland kind of a different type of offense different type of uh, athlete that they tend to recruit so do you feel that like your uh, strength conditioning approach kind of changes a little bit based on like hey like uh, if the coach is a big like you know grounded pound type of dude we need to have some bigger offensive line and we need a bigger back to be able to smash it in opposed from you know more like kind of the spread run and gun kind of deal where now all of a sudden we got a whole bunch of fast guys kind of like the uh the the cat at Oregon that was you know running those hurry up and all those linemen were about 275 pounds because they couldn't keep big dudes in there yep yeah it, and it has it I think I've I think I've developed and progressed to where, again, we, you know, what does the head coach expect? What's the objectives? What are we trying to get done? All that comes into account. Whereas probably when I was 26, I really didn't care what we did on defense or offense. I came from a place where, you know, I joke with locks about this. When I was at Alabama, we snapped the football 60 times a game, 60. We played defense. When he was at Alabama, they were snapping the ball almost 90 times a game and they were putting the football all over the field. We didn't do that. And so I would often look back and say, how could I train a team the same way and prepare them the same way to go do something totally different? So I do think I've, I've, uh, I've definitely grown and evolved because again, at, at 26, I wasn't looking at what we were doing offensively or defensively. I didn't care. I didn't care what we did on special teams. I was like, this is how we're going to get a football team ready. I know how to get a football team ready, and you can't tell me any different. What, uh, how's Maryland set up? I mean, are you guys more kind of a, a speed team? I mean, it sounds like you guys like to run. Is that kind of the division you guys are in? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to try to snap the ball on offense, you know, and they're going to get the ball all around the field. They're going to snap it a whole lot more. So it's – the offense is going to be similar to what you what you've seen at Alabama the last few years, you know, um, and and on defense they've got to be able to run. You know, I, I I talk with my coordinators quite a bit, and John Hoke will tell you like what's his biggest thing for guys. Guys are going to be able to run. That's what I need. Guys have to be able to run and move. Um, when you look at our offensive coordinator, they're going to tell you we're going to tempo, we're going to snap the ball. You know, a lot of times we're going to have a lot of snaps on the field. We're going to spread people out there are times that we're going to bring people in. So I could go through like I do with my OC, what every position is going to demand, you know? So we talk about it and we talk about how we want to train those guys 
how we want to develop those guys. And I need to make sure that what I'm doing ultimately is preparing them for the demands that the coaches are going to place on them and what they expect of them. But I'll tell you again, at, at 26, you couldn't have had this conversation with me. Probably not until I was about 30 years old where I started to realize. And again, that that's because now I'd gone from Sanford to then go to Colorado State where we were different. So I went from Alabama, Sanford to Colorado State. That's the amount of time it took me to realize that, oh, man, like we're different. At Colorado State, we put the quarterback under center. And we wanted to play with two tight ends. And we wanted to freaking run downhill at people. But you know what else he would do? Bobo would take him and spread him out and say, now I want to play fast. And I'm like, well, we didn't do that when I was at Alabama. We didn't play very fast when I was there. We were bigger and stronger than people. And we moved people around. And no matter what we tried to do throwing the football, we could always give the ball to a back. You know, maybe you've heard of some of them like Trent uh, Richardson or Mark Ingram or Eddie Lacy or TJ Yeldon. You know, you, you always had those guys back there. So no matter what, we could always hand the ball off. So, as a strength coach, I, that was probably the first time that I sat back and was like, man, you, you might have to do some things different to prepare the team to play differently. Was it a moment or conversation or just a light bulb went off when interacting with the CSU head coach? The, I think the moment was when I went to CSU, when I first took the job, this was the first moment. You're, at, you're almost a mile high up there at elevation. So I know when I was at Sanford, me personally, man, I was in really good shape. I was training hard. I go to Colorado state. I'm doing the same stuff that I was doing two weeks before in the weight room at Sanford. And I'm gassed. And I'm, and so I'm like, man, well, when you're in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, you're not worried about training athletes at elevation. So I had to go and start researching this whole thing about elevation that was probably the first moment that I realized some things needed to change. And then after that first season, when I saw how we were going to be as a team offensively and defensively, I'm like, Oh man, you know what, man, we could go fast at the drop of a hat or we can come in play with two tight ends and run the football, you know? And I'm like, we need to be ready for this. So it started to change that that process started to change over that first year, and that's where I'm like, we need to we need to be able to adapt to how these coaches want them to play. Cool, I'm good. Lots of lessons to be learned in there. It was awesome. Oh, I got plenty of mistakes that I've made. Happy to share with a lot. We should of do that on another podcast. All the mistakes yeah. we've made in our lives. Man, uh, I, I, episodes I got one a lot through fifty. Of, <laughs> I'm telling you, I got a lot of them, but you know. It's uh, it, it's all gotten you to where you are today. And, and you know, I, I look, I'm really pleased with the process behind our program right now. Um, and and I, I just I don't know that I had much of a process at 26. I was like copying and pasting, you know, what I thought we should be doing from what I saw. And now we've got a system. We've got a process. We know how we're going to we know how we're going to go about things. But that evolves every year based on a lot of different circumstances and factors sweet yeah we're good awesome awesome show yeah, man, ryan thank almost, you very much for joining us yeah dude. uh thanks for allowing us to suck almost two hours of your life away into power <laughs> athlete radio no man i appreciate what you guys are doing man and, and keep doing it i'm glad i'm honored to be a part of it today and you know I, I love following you guys and listening to some of what you've been able to do so man keep doing it and, and keep helping progress us
Well, thank you. And uh, I'm uh, now I'm definitely going to watch Maryland. So if, uh, dude, I'm just, I, uh, I'm not a college football fan because I think it looks like it's moving too slow after playing the NFL. <laughs> like it looks like you're moving in slow motion. So whenever I watch college football, it kind of gives me like a little bit of anxiety because it looks like people are moving in slow motion. I wish I could yeah. watch it at like 1.2 speed. But uh, no, I'm definitely uh, excited to watch you guys play, man. And I'm, I'm excited to see what happens in college football. Uh, well, well, we appreciate that. We do. We appreciate the support. Thank you. Awesome, Ryan. Thank you very much, dude. I'd love to. I'm going to follow up via email. We'd love to send your staff some gear and then shoot some, some gear to you and Marissa. Awesome, man. I appreciate you guys again. You guys be well and make sure you stay safe out there, man. Wash your hands. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you too. Be well. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. All right, guys. See you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Ryan Davis on Instagram with the handle at Coach Ryan Davis. Until next time, bye!